A reading from Mark, chapter 13, verses 1 through 37. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign when all of these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places, and there will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver, over to, deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the, flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now, and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, Look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard, I have told you all things beforehand. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds and from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey, when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore stay awake. 
For you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, this is a humdinger. Uh, We're going to do our best to um, work through this whole chapter this evening. And, and the main reason is it is presented to us as a complete uh, body of teaching that Jesus gives in, in basically one uh, conversation to his disciples. That's how Mark presents it to us, and so uh, that's how I want to handle it for tonight. And we're, uh, we're, as we have been, continuing to work our way through this gospel of Mark. And um, as a way to get you thinking about this passage... Uh, I don't know, maybe think to your childhood or uh, if you have children and you've been on a road trip, my guess is you either asked this question or you have been asked this question, when are we going to get there? And I have come up with several ways of answering that question that never seem to put an end to that question. <laughs> it's a persistent question and uh, because I'm not very successful at it, I, I couldn't help but One of my favorite examples of this is actually from a family favorite movie, The Incredibles. When, uh, at the end of the movie, when Mr. Incredible and his family are on their way to get the bad guy, and his uh, wife, who's also Elastigirl, is holding this RV on this odd spaceship, and Mr. Incredible's driving, and the kids or in the back, and Dash, who's a little boy, says to his dad, when will we get there? And Mr. Incredible, exasperated, says, we get there when we get there. That's his answer. We get there when we get there, just don't ask me anymore. And that's kind of what this passage is about. It's about our propensity to want to know, when are we going to get there? When is life going to actually turn out the way the Bible says it's going to turn out. And Jesus, in this passage, is going to help us to see that that's really not the question, nor is that the issue, nor is that really what you most need. This is a passage about the future, and it's, it's a passage that is it's shot through with language and imagery from the Old Testament, so much so that Um, it would be well worth your time to just get a good Bible with good cross-references and take some time and see where they point you and go read all... I mean, there's, there's, there are at least two dozen passages or more referred to in this chapter in the Old Testament and simply shot through with references to the Old Testament, which what that tells us, why is that important? Because it's a passage about the fulfillment of the Bible. It's a passage about all of God's word, all of his promises coming to their fulfillment. And what that means is that according to Jesus from this passage, if we're going to follow that logic, Jesus is saying that nothing in the future falls outside of the vision and hope of God's word. And that... That holds true from when Jesus spoke this before he suffered and died on the cross all the way to the end of history. And that holds true for everything in between. 
including your life right now here today. And so here, what Jesus gives us in this passage, we could summarize like this. Jesus gives us all we need to face the future with confident hope, no matter what comes, through faith in him. That Jesus gives us all we need to face the future with confident hope, no matter what comes, through faith in him. And as we look at this chapter, I want to give you a couple uh, tips a couple things to think about and when you read a passage like this one. Uh, there's, there are a few passages that you will come across in the Bible that you will find more diversity of opinion about. As you read commentators and Bible scholars, this is one of those passages that does create lots of difference of opinion. However, I don't think that it means it's not clear. And I hope to try to show you that even in those situations, this is, there's plenty of clarity to be gotten. And one way to help us with that is that it's very common, especially when we look at the Old Testament prophets like Jeremiah or Ezekiel or Isaiah, and especially Daniel, that they will make pronouncements about the future. And they will make pronouncements about the future in such a way that can give the impression that the moments and the events that they are talking about will, will uh, fall out in quick succession. However, that's really not their intention when they uh, arrange their material that way. They're not trying to give you a timeline. Instead, they're simply trying to put in front of you, here is what God's going to do. When he's going to do it, we're not really trying to tell you that. And here's a way to think about this. Have you ever um, driven across I-70 going west to Denver? As you approach Denver, all you see is this enormous wall of mountains. And you see a number of different mountain peaks. But from your vantage point, they all look basically the same distance from you. But the closer you get to that mountain range the more you realize, wow, these mountain ranges are really far apart. And they're actually mountain ranges I couldn't see because of the mountain ranges in front of them. And all of a sudden, what you thought was a unified whole is now this elaborate, intricate, involved, glorious vision of this beautiful mountain range with all kinds of variety and difference from what you first noticed. That's kind of like this passage. Or another smaller example, if you ever have had an old-fashioned telescope, and you know how they, uh, they, they collapse, they get shorter and longer. And when it's collapsed, it looks like it really is only maybe eight inches long. And... However, when you expand it, all of a sudden you realize, wow, what I thought was just one eight-inch long uh, thing to look through now is this three-foot-long instrument that enables me to see much further than I could otherwise. That's another way of thinking about this passage, that what Jesus is giving us here is not a timeline. Rather, he's trying to give you what you need to face the future 
no matter what comes. And so what I want to do with you to look at this passage is I want to look at this passage in three headings. We're going to look at the paradigm of the temple. We're going to look at two keys for understanding. And then we'll finish on the coming of the Son of Man. So when we look at the paradigm of the temple, uh, if you've been with us in recent weeks, we just finished chapters 11 and 12. Jesus entered into Jerusalem. The first place he went was the temple in Jerusalem. And he has been in conflict with the religious leaders for the whole last chapter. The temple has been central in the story of Mark up to this point. And here, as we come to chapter 13, Jesus has left the temple. He's come out of the temple, and one of the disciples, Mark doesn't tell us who, says to Jesus, look, teacher, this is in verse 1, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And in verse 2, Jesus says to him, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And then, as they continue on, and they're opposite now, the city of Jerusalem. They're on the Mount of Olives, and they're uh, able to look, actually, back to the Temple Mountain. And uh, some commentators describe the way that the Mount of Olives is positioned towards the, uh, the Temple in Jerusalem. You could almost look into the Temple from this mountain. And several of Jesus' uh, disciples, Peter, James, and John, and Andrew, ask him privately, tell us when all these things will be, and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished. So what you need to understand at the very outset, the context for this chapter is the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. Now, that had not happened yet when Jesus obviously said these words. But from our historical situation, it has happened. In A.D. 70, Jerusalem was sacked and the temple was destroyed. And I think for us, that's, that probably doesn't register real high on your historical uh, timeline of really significant events. But let me try to show you why that was such a significant thing for Jesus to say that not one stone will remain upon another. That this temple that represents God dwelling on earth, that represents the overlap between heaven and earth, it'll be gone. Let me try to explain why this is a significant thing. Here's what you need to know. The temple in Jerusalem was seemingly indestructible. Herod the Great, it had been about 50 years uh, in the making. And as we know from uh, archaeology and and study around the temple, it was 325 meters wide. It was 500 meters long. It was nearly a mile wide in circumference and you could fit 12 football fields inside of it. Not only was it enormous, Josephus, a church historian from uh, the earliest parts after uh, first, second century in there, says that some of the stones of the temple were said to have been 60 
feet in length. And other scholars have noticed that other stones measured 42 feet in length. They were 11 feet high. They were 14 feet deep. And they weighed over a million pounds. In other words, the temple in Jerusalem, it exceeded in size and in scope any other temple in the ancient world. So the destruction of the temple and the fall of Jerusalem, which we know happened in AD 70, for the readers of this gospel, which would have been about 58 AD, a decade before this event, for Jesus to pronounce the destruction of this temple would have been catastrophic. It would have meant anything and everything that they knew about in the past that stood for God's presence on earth was done. It would have been a cataclysmic crisis. Now, keep that in mind because that sets the background for everything that follows in this chapter. Keep that in mind because in response to this question that the disciples give Jesus in verse 4, he gives us two keys for understanding this chapter. He gives us a framework, and he gives us a clue. Now, I'm, I, admittedly here, I am, I'm having to be much more uh, brief or succinct than I might otherwise be if we were to spend several weeks on this. So uh, if you have questions and things that come up, um, that's okay. Feel free to, to ask me. But really what I'm trying to do is to try to give you um, hooks to hang your hat on as you come to read a passage like this so that you're not left in just confusion and bewilderment but actually hope and confidence in the gospel. So let's look at these two keys for understanding. First, let's look at the framework that Jesus gives here. We see a framework that Jesus gives by looking at three very uh, distinct phrases. First of all, look in verse 4, which we just looked at from the disciples here. It's in their question. Verse 4, tell us when these things, it's that phrase, these things will be. And then what will be the sign that all these things will be accomplished? So the these things, that's the first part of the framework, which refers to the destruction of the temple. Okay? Now, the second part of this framework, go all the way to verse 32, towards the end of the chapter, where there, Jesus says, but concerning that day or that hour. Now, here is a totally different reference. Here, Jesus is not referring to these things that he was speaking to with respect to the disciples' question in verse 4. Here, verse 32 begins with a but concerning that day or that hour. And what you need to know about that is that phrase is used by the prophets in the Old Testament again and again to describe the end of the age, to describe that moment when the Lord returns, the Lord's appearing at the end of history. So that's the second part of the framework. We have these things in verse 4. In verse 32, 
We have that day or that hour. Now, what comes in between? Those are the two bookends, if you will. In between is the third part of the framework. Look in verse 17, verse 19, and verse 24. In verse 17, and we'll get to some of the details here, but for the moment, look for the phrase, those days. Verse 17, and alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. Then look in verse 19, for in those days there will be such a tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And then look in verse 24. But in those days, after that tribulation or that trouble or that trial, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. Here's what I want you to see. By paying attention to those three ingredients of this framework, what Jesus is helping us to see, he is referring to the destruction of the temple He's referring to the end of history, and he is referring to everything in between. And that to a great degree, there is enormous overlap between all of them. And we make a great mistake, and we will misunderstand Jesus if we read this passage and try to figure out the calendar for everything that he talks about here. That's simply not his concern. So that's the framework. But what about the metaphor? What does the metaphor that he gives here? It's a clue. Look in verse 8. The clue that he gives to help understand this framework we find in verse 8. In verse 8 he says, For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. And then listen. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. Now, if you need one clue or one image or metaphor to understand all of history, from Jesus' ministry to the end of history, this is the image that he gives us. And it's a really ingenious image. Because think about it. One writer helps us to to think about this metaphor like this. Labor pains certainly indicate that a birth is about to take place. But who knows how long a woman's birth labor may be. The birth pains indicate that childbirth has begun. They do not serve as a prophecy of the exact moment of delivery. This beginning of birth pains does not tell us whether the end will be tomorrow or next century. And I actually could give you from personal experience when our first son was born it took a really really long time I think it was like 24 28 hours when our second son was born it took two hours birth pains do not tell you when the baby is going to come but they do tell you there is a baby on the way And Jesus is trying to help you to see here when these things that are described in here are going to happen is not the point. Because what's he doing? Jesus, in this passage, he's not trying to scare you. 
He's trying to prepare you to live faithfully and wisely no matter what. Look in verse 9 and verse 23 here. In verse 9, after Jesus has described uh, these birth pains, he says, but be on your guard. Look down again, verse 23. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. Now, think for a moment. There is an awful lot in this passage that we don't have time to go into in detail. But we read about wars, rumors of wars. We read about international conflict. We read about natural disasters. We read about, in verse 14, here with this rather odd phrase, the abomination of desolation, which comes out of Daniel three different times. And it always describes uh, military uh, occupation and overthrow of God's people. You can look in Luke chapter 20 or 20, Luke chapter 21, uh, where Luke in the similar passage, he describes Jerusalem surrounded by armies and calls it the abomination of desolation. He's talking about the destruction of the temple and the overthrow of Jerusalem there. But then he talks about people fleeing from their homes, pregnant women having to flee for safety in the midst of great trial and tribulation. He talks about false teachers, false saviors. This is a somewhat unnerving passage. And yet we see, actually, all kinds of these things happening, both not just in the present, but throughout history. So what is Jesus doing? He's trying to prepare you. In verse 20. When Jesus says, I have told you all things beforehand. That's an astounding claim. What Jesus is saying to us is, look, if you take me seriously, I am telling you everything you need to know beforehand. So that through trusting in me, you will make it to the end. I'm not leaving anything out. Now, why does he do this? Why does he tell us all these things beforehand? Well, the first reason uh, is, uh, I'll put it sort of negatively, and then we'll have a second reason that's positive. First of all, why does he tell us, why does he want us to be prepared beforehand and tells us all these things? Well, first of all, look in verse 6. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will be... they will lead many astray. And the same idea shows up in verse 21. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. He tells us this because we are prone to be deceived. We are prone to find our refuge and our hope and our confidence and our salvation in false saviors. And he's telling us beforehand, do not be deceived. But second, he tells us this because we're prone to despair. Look in verse 7. And when you hear of wars and rumors, do not be alarmed. I don't know about you, but when I woke up and heard about what happened in Orlando, not to mention the countless other things that you read in the paper day in and day out, 
It is very easy to be to get despairing. It's very easy to lose hope. And I need, and perhaps you do too, for Jesus to say, do not be alarmed. I'm telling you all things beforehand. We are prone to despair. Jesus knows that. And he gives us this passage. But not only that, we also want to be liked. We want to be liked almost more than anything else. So look in verse 13. Jesus says, If you are a follower of mine, you will be hated by all for my name's sake. Now, this comes right after Jesus most immediately is talking to his disciples that those who he has selected to go and bear witness about him to the nations will get dragged in synagogues and beaten. And they'll be brought before rulers and they'll have to give an account and they won't know what to say. And Jesus says, I'll be with you. Don't worry about it. I don't know about you, but I want to be liked just as much as the next next person. And, And to be told that to follow him means that we will in all likelihood be despised and hated. I need Jesus to tell me all things beforehand. What about you? Now, the more positive reason why Jesus tells us all these things is because what does he say here? He says, look in verse 23 again when he says, I've told you all things beforehand. And then in verse 31, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. You need this passage because you need to hear from him that his word is eternal. But secondly, notice in verse 11, this is where, again, Jesus describing his followers meeting with opposition for his name. Jesus says that he will be with you. He will not forsake you. He will not leave you an orphan. He will give you what you need when you need it, especially in the midst of suffering, especially in the midst of persecution, especially in the midst of trial. But also notice in verse 20, God's sovereign grace. When he says, And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. One of the things that if you were a follower of Jesus, you need to hear every day regardless of what you see or what you read about, you, you profess to believe in the Lord of history who governs all of it. And he is at work by his grace to make sure that you, are, you make it through to the end. Now, these two keys to understanding the framework and also the... Uh, this clue of birth pains and the reasons why Jesus gives us those two keys to understanding, they help us to hear and to understand and to see Jesus' repeated charge to be on guard, to stay awake. That's the point. That's the application for us from this passage is to be on guard and to stay awake rather than panicking or losing hope. 
But you know what? That's simply not enough. It's not enough for us to just say, you know, you need to be on guard. You, you just need to work really hard to stay awake. We also need to know who we are waiting for. That brings us to the third heading here, the coming of the Son of Man. Jesus, as I have mentioned, wants you to realize that any attempt to, to put together some divine calendar of events it's, is futile. Uh, it simply isn't going to work. And he tells us that. Look in verse 32. Concerning the day or the hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. But even if we don't know when, we do know the outcome. Look here in verse 24 to 27. Jesus says, In those days after that tribulation... The sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Now, I, uh, for those of you who perhaps have spent some time looking at this, there's, it's difficult to know what is Jesus referring to here. Is he referring to the uh, destruction of the temple in the first century and the fall of Jerusalem, or is he talking about the end of history? And I'm reluctant to, to say either. I think he could mean both and probably does. Uh, I'm not convinced at all that he's trying to give us a, a once-for-all definitive answer on that. But what he does here is he quotes from Daniel chapter 7 again. And we've looked at this in our study of Mark's gospel on the phrase, the Son of Man. And in that passage in Daniel chapter 7, the Son of Man, his coming is described as his enthronement that he's the coming king before the ancient of days, before God, and God gives him his kingdom. And what I want you to see here that you must see for this passage to have its way with you is notice in verse 24 and 25, creation is unraveling. The sun and the moon lose their light The skies are falling down. But notice what happens after that. The Son of Man comes. What does that mean? That means not even the unraveling of all of creation can stop God's plan through His Son to make all things new. Nothing, not even the unraveling of everything that God has made can stop what he has promised to do. But if you do struggle, and my guess is all of us do from various, at various times and in various degrees, if you struggle with trusting God with what you don't know, let me show you the Son. Look again in verse 32. It would be easy to run right past this. Jesus says, concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son but only the Father. Now, that might alarm you. That might bother you. What is Jesus saying? How could he not know? I thought he was God. What is he doing here? Jesus here, this is pretty amazing. Meditate on this. Jesus is not bothered at all by not knowing when that day will be. So we have to ask ourselves, if he's not bothered, why are we bothered? 
But even more than that, what I want you to see here, and then it comes out of verse 33 also. He says, be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. Do you see here, Jesus is saying, he, he stands in the exact same place as you do. He does not know when the end will be. And you don't either. You know what that tells you or what that picks up on? Time and again, in the Bible, Jesus is described as coming to identify with you. To stand where you stand. To experience what you experience. To struggle with what you struggle with. To be tempted with what you are tempted with. And even here, his point of view is the same as yours. And you know what? Here we have what we see come uh, in more clearly in chapter 14 when Jesus praying to his father in Gethsemane says, if there's any other way, let's do that. But not my will. Your will be done. How can you trust like this? You can only trust like this when you see Jesus trusting for you even at the cost of his own life. You see, really, when you look at, and we will in a few weeks, what happens when Jesus is on the cross, it's but a pointer. It's actually the unraveling of creation. There are earthquakes. The sky darkens. It's as if on the cross, what the scriptures teach is that 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 great day that we don't know when it will be has been brought forward. And has already taken place on the cross. That great day of crisis, that great day of judgment has happened in Jesus. So that for everyone who belongs to him, when that great day comes, at the end of history and Jesus comes back, those words that we read at the start of worship tonight will be yours. The former things will have passed away. And the new heavens and the new earth will come. And Jesus will sit down with you at his table and feast with you forever. Now, what do you need in order to make this passage come to life for you? Uh, Jesus, he tells us to be on guard because he's told us all things ahead of time. And that his word will never pass away. So what do we need? We need patience. We need courage. We need endurance. And we need trust. All of which we see in Jesus. All of which are found in Jesus. All of which we lack. We struggle with. So let's go to him together tonight. And ask him for those things. Let's pray. Father in heaven. We ask that you would use this passage. That you would teach us about Jesus. You would teach us to trust. You would teach us to listen. You would teach us to be be ready, to stay awake, to fix our eyes on him and to follow after him and to know that whatever birth pains we see or hear or experience, that is not yet the end. But the end is when we will see Jesus coming to gather from every corner of creation his people 
to renew his creation in order that all that is wrong about us and about our world would cease to be. For you are making all things new. Father, help us. For it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.